listener, this is Rachel Zucker, your host of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This is episode 66. We've got some fabulous episodes lined up for you. A conversation with John Bewin, director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and host of the podcast, Seen on Radio. An episode with poet, musician, and Torah teacher, Alicia Jo Rabins. A translation episode with the amazing Jennifer Croft. And this conversation you're about to hear with Sarah Gambito. Sarah Gambito is the author of the poetry collections Delivered and Matadora, and the recently released Loves You, which includes poems and recipes. Sarah is Associate Professor of English and the Director of Creative Writing at Fordham University. I was not feeling myself when Sarah came to my apartment last Friday, March 1st. I had just been diagnosed a few days earlier with a bad case of anemia and was feeling tired, dizzy, and pretty out of it. But I didn't want to cancel with Sarah. I loved reading her books and making some of the recipes from Loves You. And by the way, if you follow Commonplace on Twitter or Instagram, you can see photos of the dishes I made from Sarah's book. I'd read an article about a class Sarah had taught at Fordham and interviews with her about teaching, social activism, and spirituality, and I suspected we might be kindred spirits. Also, I've been taking this fabulous mindfulness-based stress reduction class with Elaine Rethholtz, based on the teachings of John Kabat-Zinn. I first heard about MBSR and John Kabat-Zinn from Commonplace guest Gabby Calvacaresi, and the class has truly been life-changing. I wanted to talk to Sarah about this class, about mindfulness and meditation. So I kept the appointment, and I am so glad I did. Sarah is a ray of sunshine. Her energy and intelligence are radiant. You will hear me refer to my anemia, and I do sound pretty woozy at times, but in a way, I was in the perfect state to fully appreciate this long, deep conversation about prioritizing joy and abundance, care, and nourishment. Sarah and I talk about cooking, non-traditional teaching, mothering, writing, and about how she and Joseph Legaspi co-founded Kundiman, an essential, wonderful organization that supports writers and readers of Asian American literature. To find out more about Kundiman, about Sarah, about the other texts and people we mentioned in this episode, visit our website, commonpodcast.com. There, you can also sign up for our per-episode newsletter and find a link to become a patron. Commonplace has no corporate funding and no ads. It is made possible by the support of our patron listeners. Thank you, patrons. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club, patrons who support Commonplace at $10 or more per month, will receive all by Sarah Gambito, Matadora, courtesy of Alice James Books, and Deliverance and Loves You, courtesy of Persia Books. Patrons will also get access to some of my favorite recipes, recipes I make all the time for my family, and will have a chance to share yours with other Commonplace listeners. In the next few days, if I'm well enough to travel, I'll be heading off to Taiwan, and then Japan, and then Portland, Oregon, for the Association of Writing Programs Conference. 
Commonplace is hosting an on-site reading featuring Ross Gay, Gabrielle Calvacaresi, Sabrina Oramark, and Adam Faulkner, as well as an off-site reading featuring Jericho Brown, Janine Joseph, Erica Meitner, Morgan Parker, Tommy Pico, T.C. Tolbert, Sarah Vapp, and Yin Yi. It would be lovely to see some of you at these events. I hope you enjoy this delicious conversation and the upcoming ones as well. Take care and be well. I might have looked official, but I hadn't pressed record. (laughs) This is the thing. It's like, I'm actually very humbled by this experience. This experience being... Yeah, what's been the biggest sort of reward for you? Well, first of all, what I'm talking about is... um, what they call brain fog, just feeling really aware of how unsettling it is not to feel like myself. Mm-hmm. And and then to ask myself, what does it feel like to feel like myself? And I'm having the experience of I'm getting very tired, very out of breath. And so I'm just, I have to really slow down you know, double check myself, you know, I, I'm going to the wrong locations, I'm forgetting the phone numbers. And that's, I mean, I'm really grateful that that that's not my usual experience. And it is for a lot of people. Yeah. So it's more uh, interesting. I hope it goes away soon. Yeah, sure. But um, it is really interesting to see that there are things I notice when I'm moving slower, obviously. Yeah. So wait a second. We just like dove right in. <laughs> I, I, okay. Hello, Sarah. Hi. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I do want to tell you that I had a fantasy of greeting you with all of the dishes from all oh, of so the recipes. Sweet. Yeah. I have made the chicken adobo <gasps> recipe. How did it go? Very well. Oh now, chicken adobo is one of the few recipes in, in your book that I have already made. Made, yes. Um, yes. There was like a long time ago, there was an email chain amongst a bunch of poets it was like a recipe share. So like you shared a recipe with three people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and chicken adobo was the recipe that came to me, I think from Nick Carbo. Yes. How was it? Well, it was great, but yours is different. Yes. And so I had been making his for years and years and my kids loved it and I loved it and I made yours and I hope Nick is not listening. (laughs) They prefer yours. Oh my gosh. So, and I have photos. To prove it. I'd love to see that. Would you like to see that? Okay, I'm going to show you. Um, I mean, like, it's been said over and over. It's like there are, like, hundreds of different ways to make adobo, and everyone is convinced theirs is the right way. And I will say that what I like about that recipe is that you kind of get the sort of crispiness or the charredness, along with the idea that it's also still a stew and a kind of braise. So um, I'm so pleased. I love cooking and I love that there are recipes in this book. And like I said, my fantasy was like, I'm going to make them all before she comes over and then I'm going to present them to her for a critique. <laughs> but also like not just for a critique, but for, I was so much fun spending time with you through the reading of the book, yeah. but then cooking also was a way of spending time yes, with you. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the things like I will say, like it's been hard to just be a person like alive like 
in this country and for a number of years, because it's like my last book came out in 2009. This is 2019. So it's 10 years. And like, I've been asking myself a lot of questions, like, what is a poet to do? Like, what is, how are you called to your time? Mm. What, <laughs> what's my job right now? Like, I come to this time now and not like, 20 years ago or five years ago, like, what am I supposed to do? So for many years, I was just like, I don't, I'm not sure. And I've told the story before, but like a really good friend of mine, we were in Ipodo, like eating ramen. And he was like, well, what does your poetry do? And I was like, I was like, I cupped my, it was like so cold outside. I cupped my hands around the ramen. I was like, it should do this. Like, mm. it should like light you up from inside. It should be like something you can like, hold and like it can nourish you through the bone right and like take you through the door like that's what the hope can be and so I started thinking about the recipe as itself like a kind of poetic text right that it's like call and response like it is in and of itself inert right as it sort of lives on the page. But then what I crave is like that there's some kind of action, that we do something, right? That um, it impels you to action in the world. I was sort of impatient with the kind of like, you know, it sort of stays in the brain, which is still lovely, mm -hmm. right? But I found I sort of crave a different relationship. And so that's why it was really important to me that the recipes are like actually real recipes that you can make. And I don't know, like, I love the idea of like, you know, the recipe as a spell too, as alchemy, you put these things together and, and something can happen and your audience is the one that you feed or yourself, right? Yep. And, you know, what I love so much about this particular kind of action, and I love that you're, you're describing it as action, is it's so multi-sensory, right? But I do think that that connection between poetry and action or poetry and embodiment and poetry and community and poetry and not poetry coexisting or yeah. blurring the line is something that I want to ask you about in terms of your teaching, in terms of your new book, in terms of your, in terms of Kundiman, in terms of all of these things. Like it, to me, it feels really essential in who you are in the mm. world. Mm -hmm. um, but can we go back to what you said about how there's 10 years between, yeah. like what was going on during that time? How did you kind of feel about that? And were you worried that you'd never have another book? Did you yeah. have one, but you held it back? You know, when I say this, like nothing happened in my personal life until like around 2009, 2008, but it's like, I got married and like, I had a kid yeah. <laughs> and like, I, you know, I had like a big girl job and like all these things almost happened all at the same time. And like, I got married in 2010 and I had my son in 2010. Wow. Um, so all of these things were like, just my life shattered in like the best and most wonderful and most <laughs> death-defying ways that they can. And so, you know, I didn't have those gorgeous long stretches of solitude. And I think I had to reconfigure. There were many months I just didn't couldn't write at all. Did you feel prepared for that pause? No. 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 And in fact, I was on maternity leave and I was like trying to write and the, nothing could come and... I was talking to Myungmi Kim and I was like, I can't write. It's not working. And when you identify, that's like a sort of major understanding of like who you think you are and you don't have access to it. I was like at a complete 
loss, a complete puddle. And I talked to Myomi Kim and I was like, I feel terrorized by the fact that I can't do what I've loved and how I understand myself. And she like said the best thing. She looked at me and she was like, you have to stop this. Mm. You have to stop. She was like, you are being a poetic terrorist to yourself (laughs) like you have to stop you have to find a new way of working like the other way is different and for now you have to lay off and I mean I could hear it and part of me could not hear it but it stayed with me after all these years the kind of it's like I such an important part of me didn't exist and I didn't know how to recover it So, and it's interesting because like also I had to cook, not because I thought it was cute or I'm trying to impress someone. I had to cook this like, this is a family. Yeah. So I think there was like a year where I was like trying out different recipes for roast potatoes. And this very weird thought, I was just like, I think I'm as interested in potatoes as I am in a poem. Like it's as fascinating to me because, you know, you can try different kinds of potatoes, different oils, different, uh, do you parboil first, right? Like, do you slice them? Do you use the little tiny ones? Do you, I mean, there's so many ways. And I was just like, I am sincerely as fascinated by this as I I could be with a book of poetry. And I was just like, what do I do with that? Mm. And so this book is kind of like bringing these things together. First of all, I recently started um, parboiling potatoes and adding baking soda, which changes the pH of the water. What does it do to the potatoes? So then when you roast them, the outsides are really crispy and the insides are soft and fluffy. I have to try that. And I also just want to say there have been phases where I have that same feeling where I just, you know, I don't like having to cook every single day for a lot of people. And sometimes people are not appreciative, um, (laughs) you know, but I do love cooking. And there are definitely moments where I feel like one of the great joys in my life is I always think of the word render, Mm -hmm. like to go from the squash, let's say, you know, like a kombucha squash, which is inedible, as you yeah. see it, yeah. and to render it yes. into something delicious. Yes. yes, And knowing it can take so many forms, you can flavor it in all these different ways. And something about going from that process, mm-hmm. you know, all the way through, like... Mm-hmm. It's a magic. It it's is a, magic. It, yeah, it is. And, an, then, and you mm-hmm. can, and then, I mean, I'm sorry, like I know this is no, a poetry no. podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm supposed to love poetry above everything, but... You know, poetry of cooking, right? No, it's just like, you know, there's people where, you know, they don't want to go to a poetry reading. They don't want your poetry book. But if you invite someone over for a great dinner. They're never going to say no. Yes. Never going to say no. And it's so pleasurable to give someone something that they actually really want Mm -hmm. um, and to feel good at it in that way and to feel, you know, that it's generous. There's something about being a poet Except with your close poetry friends yeah. who, who just adore the gift that you're giving them. But most, from for many people, it feels like a burden yes. for many students. Yes. You know, it's it's not like, oh, I made this for you. Yeah, the, the brow furrows and they're like, oh, okay, thank you. But oh, absolutely, you're right. And you know what? I think the sort of materiality of cooking, like you're in, like, you know, you wash the basil under the water. And I was thinking to myself, like, well, I don't say 
maybe I'll make roast potatoes. Like, I hope that I'll be successful. Or <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's going to, I'm going to stress about it. Like, it's like, I'm just like, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to try it. And like, I feel like with poetry too, it's just like, okay, maybe it's going to happen. Maybe it's going to, and I want to like live a little lighter as a writer. Like, just be like, let me just try this. Or like, I'm making this for people who might want it. But just that that kind of acrobatics in the head that I realize I don't have with cooking. And that's why cooking is such a pleasure to me. And sometimes poetry really like is just has a different difficulty and it's it can be just harder to enter that space. The other thing I was going to say is that with cooking and with other really important things in my life, um, I've gone through periods of time where it feels like a crisis of oh no, what if I don't care about poetry anymore? Mm -hmm. And for sure I had this, uh, I when I started to uh, work as a doula and I would be at people's births and then I was still working, I was actually working at Fordham mm -hmm. um, and, and then afterwards at NYU and teaching and stuff. And there were some times for me where I just thought, I don't want to help people with their writing. It's not urgent. I know what it feels like mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. help someone have a baby. Mm -hmm. And it feels mm. like sacred. It feels urgent. There have been times I felt that way with cooking. There's been times I felt that way with other things. For me so far, eventually it has integrated. So like eventually I've come to feel like my doula training was the most important thing in how I teach poetry now. And now I care, again, so deeply about my yes. work with my graduate students, with my undergrads. And it feels absolutely connected to the doula work and yes. to cooking and to yes. trying to think about what is really my role? What am I really providing? Mm. But mm -hmm. each time along the way, it always felt like I was having some kind of adulterous affair <laughs> where I was like, I'm leaving you poetry for mm -hmm. this other thing. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh, no, it's the same thing. I mean, why didn't anybody tell us that earlier? <laughs> like, very similarly, I think my work as a literary organizer, like with Kundima, and like, in some ways, like, I thought of them as very discreet, like my life as a poet, and then my life as an organizer and an activist and as a teacher, right? All these things were very separate. Um, but I will tell you that class that you asked about, The Good Life, in some ways I came to that class as I've come to like literary organizing. So the thing is, is like, it's like, how can you sort of create joy in the room? Okay, wait, hold on. Let's go back because people are going to be like listening and thinking like, Okay, what are they talking about? Oh, okay, sorry. so yeah. in 2009, you started at Fordham? 2010, right around 2008, I started at Fordham. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right. And I was there 2005 to <gasps> 2007. Oh my gosh, I just missed you. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, okay, so you, you came to Fordham and you're the director of the creative writing program. Yes. But recently, you taught this class called The Good Life. Yes. Uh, so describe the class, because it was a departure from the way that yes. you had been teaching in the past. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm totally obsessed with this class. So say what it is, like kind of what you did, um, and yeah. then let's talk about how it was kind of the integration yeah. of like yeah. different parts that had... Yeah, I think it's all going to come together. Okay. Like okay. I, I feel like um, it was only last year that I was just like, I don't know, like I would talk to other teachers. I would talk to myself and be like, oh, teaching so hard. It is hard, right? And to be like, 
it felt like a gift, but it also felt like, you know, a drain, like because you're giving, right? And then I was thinking to myself, sort of preparing myself for the beginning of the school year and just thinking about like, how can I have a good time in the class? So it's just like, I think that in the past, my relationship was like, how do I give, give, give? But then I was just like, how do I also create a structure where it's like, I have some kind of joy also. So I I created this class called The Good Life. Again, thinking about like, what can I give to writers right now? I did some research on the Purusharthas, which are in the Vedic scriptures, some of the oldest scriptures that we still use. And in it, there's Dharma, Artha, Moksha, Kama. um, But basically, it's like I created units, right? Because just like, how do you live a good life, right? And I guess it's a thing too. It's like, you know, the best poem you can write is the poem of your life, right? So, So then what is a life? What is a good life? And so I feel like now I needed to go to the ancients. It just seems so crazy right now. I felt like I really needed something that was deep and that you can't argue with. Mm-hmm. So being with those scriptures felt really right to me. What I want in the class is a kind of strong underlying abundance and um, graciousness. And so I was like, I can talk about that. And that's what I usually do. I was like, but what if I just did it with them? Mm. And so they walked in the first day and I had bought succulent plants for all of them. (laughs) So they came in with this gift from me. And it was like, I mean, one could say I could tweak that because like sometimes they drop the class and other people like come in. And so I was buying more plants for the people that came in. Um, but what I, what I said to them, I was just like, you have to take care of your creative self, right? So, so this plant is like this self that you're going to take care of for the entire semester. I was like, you're going to name this plant. I want you to take pictures. You know, we're going to talk about this. And like, they just fell in love with these plants. And it's like, I did feel like doing something and really giving something like something that was concrete to the class changed the whole class like Mm -hmm. day one Mm -hmm. because they weren't anticipating that and also I think because it was this live thing that then they had to keep thinking about like they had to be in relationship with this little plant through the whole semester so I began with that I also began every and this comes back to meditation every class with like a breath meditation Mm. and it's just like sometimes I would realize it was like that was the first time I had breathed the whole day and we were breathing together. And so it helped me enter the class. And then we also did Michelle, who um, directs the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. She was saying, she was like, the human body cannot pay attention for more than 15, 20 minutes. Mm. Like, it looks like you're paying attention. You're not paying attention, right? So she was like, rather than hide from that, let's just acknowledge that that's happening. And so I watched her teach this fabulous workshop at Kundiman. And she had this little sort of chime app on her phone. And she was like, Every like 15, 20 minutes, this is going to sound off. We're just going to get up. We're going to stretch. We're going to move around. We're going to come back. And I was thinking to myself, this is not going to work. I was like, it's going to break the class. People are going to be all over the place. And oh my God, it, people like, they came back and they picked up the thread like right away. Like no energy lost. In fact, everybody came back like refreshed. And so I did that for the first time in this, in this class. And it's like, everybody looked forward to it, getting up acknowledging the body, then coming back. And I guess like you could say like, so this book loves you is about the body as well, right? Like feeding the body, nourishing the body. And so this here, like moving in your body. Mm. 
And so I, I just did a, um, I did a Reiki training in September. Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. I mean, I love therapy. Like I, I will fully admit this, like it saved my life for many years. I was in analysis. I'm still in therapy now. And it just like, I wouldn't be here without it. I will say though, some part of it is always kind of intellectual mm -hmm. for me. And I found like the first time I did a real Reiki session with the laying on of hands, it's like somebody to say to you, to remind you, you're still on the earth. Mm. The first session I had was at the JCC, mm -hmm. right? And it was all these sort of strangers in this room together. It was like a group session, $25 or something like that. It's one of the best things you can do in New York City. And it was just like without ego, you know, and almost like massage. I love massage, but it's like massage wants your body to do something, mm -hmm. right? Whereas like Reiki, it's just like you're here. I found it so profound. So I'm taking this mindfulness class at the JCC right now. I love the um, JCC. And uh, so I'm not teaching this semester, but I am thinking about how to integrate yes. some of these things. And and this has been my teaching practice as well, like how to integrate the doula principles, how to integrate care for self, care for others, how to talk about like sustainable writing lives, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, and not falling into the myth of the tortured, tortured, poet. substance abusing, no. ego mm -mm. heavy, you no. know? Yeah. So maybe you can use this and we'll figure I'd out love how to that. teach yeah, this. Yeah. So, so one of the exercises was for a week, you were supposed to keep track of pleasant or pleasurable experiences, just write them down, you know, what you were feeling, you know, what was the context. And then the next week you were supposed to, you know, keep track of unpleasant um, mm. experiences. And this is happening at the same time that we're learning these, a body scan and yeah. other kinds of, of mindful meditation and, and mindful activities. But then what she had us do, and it was so profound, was to break up into pairs and we were supposed to describe the feelings, and, and it could be more than feelings, um, describe or talk about the pleasant experience without the story of what it was. I've never quite had something like this. So my my partner was describing this experience and, and you weren't allowed to ask any questions or say anything. You just listened, you, you know, you could nod or whatever, but, um, and I think it was like four minutes and then you switched. And then if you felt you must ask, wait, what was the experience you were allowed to ask? Right. And then, you know, you can find out. But what was so interesting was that I watched my partner and I had the same experience too, go so deep inside mm. and the experience of listening to her mm -hmm. describe something not narrative. I was so physically invested. It was so intimate. Wow. It was so, and I thought that's what happens in moments in poems where it just, it goes all the way in. Yeah. It's not the story of what mm -hmm. happened. The story is helpful and the story but is it's often... it's the felt experience. Yes. And it's the vividness of it. And somehow it was more vivid when you when she wasn't leading with... The context. Exactly. So you don't know what the experience was. She was just telling you how she felt yeah, in her she, body. It was like breeze, lightness, um, gratefulness. 
emptiness, but not floating away, spirituality. Mm-hmm. Like the, I was just sort of throwing out these words, mm-hmm. but I was I was having to go deep. And, and then, you know, I, I noticed that I there That's would be moments exercise. where I would just say, I didn't know it was going to feel like this. So in some ways, when you said those words, was that conjuring the feeling? Absolutely. In that moment. Yes. And for both of us, it was happening for both of us. And, wow, and in a way, that's like, great. There was nothing to argue with. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. nobody was trying to convince mm-hmm. anyone. So mm-hmm. it just like went deep, deep, deep. And I can, and, and, you know, I was really in it, but then later I thought, how can I use this in a poetry class? Like also it was very profound to be invited to keep track of pleasant experiences and realize mostly we just remember the unpleasant. It's true. Um, so it's training true. yourself and also what it feels like to be with someone else and share. Mm-hmm. Somebody to witness yes. and reflect back to. Yes. And to also share that because they're doing it with you. Yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. Here's my question. Yeah. So I love thinking about teaching this way. And, you know, I've had students count rice and I've had, you know, I've done all kinds of weird, wacky things. And some, I think mostly the students really seem to love it. Every once in a while, someone is like, oh my God, this is not what I thought a writing workshop was going to be. I just want you to tell me my poems are bad. I mean, they don't oh say God. that, but that's what they freaking want. They don't, don't they? they? They're like thought I was going to come in and you're going to tell me why my poem is bad and how to fix it. And I'm like, I'm really not interested in that. Anyway, Mm -hmm. but here's my question. You know, I recently did a whole tidying thing a la Marie Kondo. um, And I found it really profound, both just like the physical act of getting rid of things, but also the principles of like joy, joy and lightness and And intuition too, like trusting, you know, when you're done with something and learning what's important to you. And then that felt like, oh my God, that's totally so important in, in teaching and in writing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not about like, oh, we're not voting on this. Like, oh, take that out of the poem. No, it's not about that. It's Mm -hmm. like, what do you want the poem Ah, to feel like? uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. But so there was this article in the Times about Marie Kondo. Okay. And it was about how like, oh, Americans in particular have this very sort of icky, um, habit of exoticizing someone, you know, okay. uh, from the East and, and like, you know, getting in, like a cult figure and sort of like, you know, signing on. And, and so, you know, it's interesting to me because I find practicing other modalities, especially going back to ancient texts, ancient practices, yeah. uh, Ayurvedic systems yes. of, of medicine and healing and wellness and thinking to be so nourishing for me and so instructive in how to teach. I guess I do feel like what is the line between cultural appropriation, mm. between sort of exoticizing mm-hmm. or sort of like, you know, uh, isn't it the Dalai Lama who basically is like, don't convert you know, stay with whatever it is your thing is. And so I do think about myself, like how, is there a way in which I'm trespassing when I use the wisdom of other cultures, of other systems, and I'm bringing it in pretty piecemeal? I mean, I, I hope I'm respectful and it feels profoundly important, but I don't know if you've come across feelings about that or if you just feel like, you know what? 
I, <laughs> I can't worry about I everything. I feel like, okay, at a base level, it's like, if you need it, why shouldn't it be there for you? I think that is sort of impossible to make a like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You should do this. But it's like, if you need it, why wouldn't it be there to comfort you or to help instruct you? Mm-hmm. Um, I love Marie Kondo. I love that she spread like wildfire. I, I wasn't the only thing I didn't like about the show. I loved all of it. I don't like when they do the gong when she like kneels down. Yeah. I just like, <laughs> like <laughs> that I was like, because there's, no, there's no gong there. There's no gong there. It just if felt she, like a caricature. If she had a gong, okay, that's one thing. But this, but I totally agree. Yeah, it's just like a cartoon gong. Yeah. And what she's doing is really prayerful. And it comes from her time as a working in the Shinto shrine. But in, And it's like in the book, you explain that, right? But in the show, it's just like you just see her do that. And I would have appreciated her being able to explain what that is. And it's just like, here's this like weird exotic thing with the weird gong um that that's the only thing i didn't like i was just like people clean their house people like feel like they can see each other and see what they value like that's great Mm -hmm. um but i I think that one has to just be in conversation with you know whatever uh tradition that is that people hold dear if there's like you can't do that then you back off you know you have to back off right Right. That's what I think came to mind was like the example of indigenous people being like, these rituals are not for you. Then it's not for you. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So, okay. Let's go back to your class. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm just getting so excited about everything that I'm just wandering about. No, no. I am Um, wondering too. So you also ate with the students, right? There were were food involved. Yes. Like, Again, to think about being a writer in the world, right? Because like to say, oh, life is like this clinical sterilized classroom with the bad lights, like that's not life, right? So one thing I wanted to do, we were in the Bronx um, near Arthur Avenue, some of the best Italian bakeries in the country. And so we took a walk to one of the bakeries and I bought them each a pastry. Like I was like, choose something you really want and we're going to talk and we're going to walk because also it's like you get to know each other too when you're walking and you're talking and they were so thrilled, right? And so we got back to the classroom. I was just like, I want you to eat this pastry very slowly, mm-hmm. very slowly. And I want you to free write, like whatever comes to you, accept it, write it down. And then afterwards, what I said to them is, Now, I'm not going to give this to you as an assignment. I was like, but part of being a writer is understanding you have power. I was like, we went to this mom and pop bakery. I was like, for those of you who are so moved, write a Google review to support this business because it matters, right? Mm -hmm. And so as writers, it's like all of these things hold valence. And so I would say that, you know, at least half the class wrote, Google reviews and doubled the reviews for this bakery. And it's like, that can drive business to this small bakery. I think that sometimes students think that, well, I'm going to be important later or Mm -hmm. what I do will matter later. And it's just like, no, everything matters now if you choose to think that way. So yes, we ate together. We did a Reiki meditation. Uh, Oh, sort of sound bath, right? Mm. And then I'd gotten them all these face masks. (laughs) Just to think of like, what do these kids need? Like they're so stressed out. Do they need me like sort of spouting off some very arcane, like, I mean, yes, that's important too, but it's like, what do they desperately need now? How can I provide a space for that? And so, I mean, I guess in some ways it's like, I feel like that's kind of what I need. 
I don't know. Okay. So we're, we're just sort of going all over the place, which is great, but it's like after the 2016 election, I really had a different relationship to this country. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some ways, like what I was seeing was what was always there. And I just hadn't seen it in such a stark way. I mean, I woke up here in New York city. I felt like there was like, like a bullseye, like on my back. I remember like going to a cafe with my husband and looking around at the beauty that is New York, which is so like mixed. And I was just like, at least I'm okay here. Mm -hmm. I'm okay here. You know? So just feeling like endangered, like I never had sort of felt it in such a visceral way. Mm -hmm. So perhaps that's also informing like this sort of need for healing, need for the body, need to assuage anxiety. I don't want to teach another way anymore. I want to teach whether I do uh, chimes or rice counting is not the issue. The issue is really about kindness. The issue is really about seeing the students as whole people and really thinking about how power works in the classroom and getting out of a system of Mm -hmm. um, critique um, in a kind of violent way and the, the artificiality of the classroom and that's really at the heart, you know, of of what it is about for me and 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 profoundly rethinking like what is my goal yeah. as a teacher. Yeah. Um but I guess so one other question that someone might be listening and wondering. I talked a little bit about or I asked about, you know, were you nervous in any way about like seeming to use other cultures or other systems that weren't your own? But were you concerned at all about being seen uh, differently for employing these non-traditional teaching practices, particularly as a woman and particularly as a woman of color? Like mm-hmm. when I employ non-traditional teaching practices, particularly ones that are explicitly nourishing yeah. um, or caretaking, there are dangers involved um, because I'm already seen much more than my male colleagues as responsible for emotional labor, um, for having a different kind of relationship with the students, for caring about their mental health in ways. You know, and I guess, you know, were you worried at all about being seen by your colleagues or by other poets as like, oh, she's doing that woo-woo, you know, she's feeding them, She's she's, she bought them a plant, you know? No, like not at all. Like, I think, I think with that class too, it's like, you know, when you're on the tenure track, you're just terrified all the time. And like, finally, I was just like, how can I just do all the things that I wanted to do? And I was scared to do them. So I actually put them all in that one class. Like I sort of like most of my teaching was fairly traditional. But I thought for that one class, I was like, I'm just going to be I'm just going to give this class like a complete pass with it. So no, I didn't feel any I was just like, what happens is what should happen. And I'm going to learn a lot from this. No, I think like, do you have tenure? Yes. So I got it in 2015, but it took me three years to finally be brave um, because you're scared of like not doing something right. And so, yeah, it took me three years to finally be like, okay, let me take a chance on the things that I've always wanted to do, but I was scared to do. Yeah. Um, and you know, I warned the students too. I was like, look, you know, this is this journey that we're going to go on. If this is not for you and you're expecting a more traditional class, like perhaps this isn't for you. And so they came in with that expectation and 
I will say that similar to what you were saying about the kind of um, exercise that you went through, it's just like if I thought about what would be joyful for me, it was joyful for them. And so, yeah, just like as a mother, as a teacher, it's like how how can I also remember myself and have this as much as possible be something where I'm receiving as well? Was there anything that didn't work at all? Are you going to teach the class again? And if so, is there something that you're going to be like, yeah, that was a great experiment that I learned failed? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um we did a lot of sort of traditional like workshopping also, but I found that maybe they were just such in this, in this space where it's like, they really wanted like just deeper, like free writing, like guided free writing mm -hmm. stuff. Like they weren't so into like the more traditional buttoned up workshops. Mm -hmm. And so maybe for that class, I would shift the expectations for that kind of thing. So there's that. And also like during the Reiki, Reiki sound bath, I messed up the um, room reservation. So we got kicked out by facilities. So they... <laughs> We were very rudely like yanked from, you know, the room and that was not relaxing at all. Like, and I think the thing is, is like being able to pivot to, so I'm, I'm turning this into a good thing, but it was bad. It was like, they were like, you know, I was upset. We were upset. Like, and it was my fault. Mm. So we were at Fordham in the Bronx. And so I was like, I don't know where to go. Like, but you know, it'd be great for us to sit still together. And Fordham's a very lovely, unexpected place, uh, especially at Rose Hill. So we went back to our um, building, but there was a chapel in mm. there called mm -hmm. the Blue Chapel. And so we went up and we sat together like in silence and they wrote together. And so we were able to recover some of what I wanted to do. But <laughs> I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like you you do these sort of non-traditional things, but there's logistics that you have to be on top of. And if you're not, like it ruins the whole thing. So Sort of, although isn't that kind of one of the most important things to learn as a writer, which is like how to tolerate um, yes, change, disappointment, right. rejection. Yes, uh, yes, yes. You know, the unexpected, yes, right? Otherwise yes, you're not going to make it as a writer. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you had said earlier, like, why didn't anyone tell us this? Which is, oh, which yeah. is such a... Certainly nobody was teaching the way we are describing when I was getting my MFA. Mm -hmm. It was the opposite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, not to say I didn't have good experiences in my MFA program. I did. But I think I was really led to believe that in order to be successful, you had to keep everything compartmentalized. Yeah. And, you know, what were the messages that you had received? And how did what was the moment for you? I mean, thank God for Myungmi Kim. But what was your way out of that mindset? Oh, that's a good question. I think even now, like it's still like, I'm still finding my way through that. I've had poetry workshops where it's like if you were emotional or if you were a bit playful, it's like, uh, like I remember telling this, it was in one workshop and I had written a poem, which was sort of like, just out there. Mm -hmm. And the teacher was like, where did you, where did this come from? And I was like, oh, it was a really interesting thing. Like, um, I was working, working, it wasn't working. And, um, magnetic poetry, I totally, and there was this like disdainful, <laughs> like embarrassed silence. Yeah. And the professor was like, oh, Sarah, don't tell us that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was like embarrassed. I was like so embarrassed by that. And so I think that in some spheres, there's still this expectation that it's like you have to 
be decorous in a certain way. It's highly intellectualized, um, no room for anything else. And I think, you know, as we've been talking, like what I love about this kind of different way of teaching is like that you can bring your whole self Mm -hmm. to it because it's a lie. Yeah. And you're still coming into the class with your whole self, right? That's why oftentimes these classroom situations are so strangulated because the kids are doing it also. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Feeling like they have to perform a certain way. And at the end of the day, right, it's like I know some, you know, some people coming out of MFA programs like I stopped writing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, okay, to ask you, what is the goal of an MFA program? If people stop writing because of your program, like that's like a (laughs) that's a failure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I think like the overarching goal, like when you come into the classroom, like what is my job? Like, what do I hope to happen? Right. Perhaps as a goal that people understand that a poem can be abundance, Mm. that you can lean deeply into somebody else's experience. You can ask gentle questions. You can be excited for each other. You can marvel. That's something that I wish it happened more. I mean, it did happen sometimes, but I just wish that, and I guess like I do try to do this in my class where it's just, you're just like, how did you do that? Like, that's amazing, right? Like for, to not be shy or to be unstinting with the idea that something lovely has happened on the page for the professor to model that for the students to have that with each other be like oh this is this is seems to be working this line seems to be (laughs) you know what I mean it is so sad and unfortunate that so much of it of my experience was out of this real scarcity economy yes you know did you earn this you know and I kept wondering like what is everybody afraid of like what is it seemed to me that that very sort of rigid rigorous approach the rigorous approach we're interested in craft and we want to make the best poems like somehow that translated almost entirely to this kind of terror of like, what if we tell someone that they're good at something and they're not? Like, oh my God, what will happen? They'll keep writing poems and they won't be good? Or like, it's so weird that that was, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. it's our job Mm -hmm. to just break them down. Mm -hmm. I don't want to break anybody down. Everybody is already broken down. The world is breaking everybody to bits. Like, I, absolutely. Absolutely. <sighs> absolutely. It's a real illness. And I mean, the dominant ideology, right, is like capitalist, it's corporate, it's like, and when in some ways that has entered into the poetry world, right? And it's like, so how do I be the one to break free, right? It's like there's so little money in poetry, but there's the few prizes. There's the, and so what it does is it can create this like schism. And I find it so toxic and horrendous and terrible, and it's rampant. It's a problem. And it's like when you have poets who believe the marketplace, we are compromised then. Like if poets can't be gracious and happy and joyful and lifting each other, if that isn't what we are able to do as poets, it's very scary. What I want to do in the classroom, what I want to continue to build with Kundiman is like, can we understand that that's a lie, first of all, right? And to accept a new paradigm. Just because you win, win, does that mean you matter more? Mm -hmm. 
like your poems matter more? It's antithetical in a way to everything that a poem can be, which is like ultimate generosity, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, read a poem. And then I want to talk about Kundiman. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Um, Well, since this is called Loves You, I'll read this love song. A young boy was shot to death, so I wrote a poem and arranged it like salt around his vanished body. I said, you can't go past here. Wind was flying in our faces. I brought my friends with their leathery hands, their hands like pylons and bread baskets and struggling rappers who sing baby, baby, baby. How does it balance on crazy bird of paradise legs? the left hands of the clock aligning around a number cut to burgundy seraphs. How do we bear our own skin against ours? How we cooked for each other, told each other we were sick. We went to beaches and we were in pink bathing suits. Salty and fatty things were in the cooler and the belly of the sky was managed with stars. We read another one. <laughs> I just, I was going to point out, um, there are these sections, umami, sour, salt, bitter, and sweet, which I just love so much that that's how you chose to organize. Mm-hmm. Um, like a cookbook. Yes. I'm not making the lychee uh, no. macaroni. I, I, no. And I was like, that. that's like, I don't know if you ever came across <laughs> this Bernadette Mayer writing exercise. No. It's, it starts off and it really sounds like a real writing exercise. I'm not saying this isn't a real recipe. I'm just saying it's not a real recipe for me. <laughs> but this for Bernadette, me either. Yeah. So this Bernadette Mayer thing is like, it starts off like, and then, you know, you should do this and you should do this. But by the end, it's like you're uh, flying. Like in tatters. Like, yeah. yeah. Like you, there's no there's no possible way to accomplish this poetry. And I love that this was in here because it's really not the kind of cooking that I do. Like I, I hardly make dessert and I'm, I'm really like a more of a stew, uh, mm-hmm. roast, uh, yes. you know, like a messy. Me too. So, that's but I loved, totally me. I was like, oh, that's, I loved read it. Like I read it like several times, but I was like, the pleasure for me is the reading of this and the thinking about, you know, other people making this and eating this. I'm not doing this. <laughs> no, and, and it's, you really put your finger on it. It's just like, I would never make this either. Like my husband, God bless him. And you see how long this is in the book and the precision that it takes, the care that it takes. I mean, I did that on purpose because like the poem right before it is sort of taking a look at these crazy cookies that mm. are called Filipinos. I saw them in Spain. And this picture here is in Madrid. Chocolate Blanco con Filipinos. <laughs> it's, just like, it's so absurd to see Spaniards like, you know, eating Filipinos. And it's the number one cookie in Spain. Wow. The best selling cookie. And so this kind of the histories of empire, you know, being wrought through food and consumption. Mm-hmm. And it just enraged me. Um, for years, it would enrage me. And like, so that, that poem here, the Cento, is about that and then it follows here with like I just really I mean this epigraph from me like instead of eating Filipinos make these and enjoy mm-hmm. my husband makes these for our <laughs> annual Christmas party and, and you know for many years like my husband was making exactly this this recipe even he is a bit tired these days and cannot really attempt this but to say like no you know we need to be really thoughtful yeah about what it is we're doing how we're thinking about what we're consuming 
the histories of what is placed before us, what we choose to take into our bodies. Right. And that, and that recipe is, um, as you said, like folded in or nestled between don't eat Filipinos and ancestor, um, yes. which I think is really, okay. maybe would you read ancestor? Yes, okay. absolutely. Ancestor. Yes. Okay. Oh, and you know what I'll just say too, like as a preface, like I've been, again, because going, wanting some sort of ancient wisdom, like I, in the last number of years, I'm just like, how do I hear them? How do I conjure them? Like, what does that look like in a way that makes sense to me? Mm. And so right now, even I'm thinking about that. Okay. So here, Ancestor. The one woven into brass tapestry. Heavy with rain, where weak neck babies cry from a sideways newspaper. Flashlight, when you shine through the veins of our house filled with maples. I traveled with my small, cloudy hands. I drank wine out of plastic cups. You can't depend on the trapeze of your ears, the poor warthogs of your hands. You hold them ping-ponging in your hands, your hands and hands of everybody in different churches. How beautiful to be gusted in these different ways, glassine and shaking yourself with canine aplomb. He had the immigrant Captain Kirk way of speaking. I want you to be deeply heard, for you to take for granted that people will want to hear what you say, but for you not to be naive or surprised when people turn away. When I was brave, I pushed my feet into the pedals and these pushed me into the world I wanted to be in. I was high and above all the other birds. The birds flew in harlequins around me. I love that poem for so many reasons. And that line stayed with me, um, how beautiful to be gusted in these different ways. It actually also intersected with my mindfulness class. Oh, wow. Because I was thinking about... This body scan, as she, as my teacher gives it to us, um, is really not about like, okay, now relax this, now relax this. It's about just notice what sensation is available to you now in your toes, in your ankle. Perhaps there's no sensation. Perhaps it's cold. It's, you know, there. perhaps there's pain. Yeah. There's this. Yeah. And the difference between trying to affect change through your attention or just notice your attention is very profound for me. Very profound. And for me, the poem resonates in many different ways, but particularly how beautiful to be gusted in these different ways, the feeling of like letting go mm -hmm. a little bit of my sense that the only way to be in the world is to be holding on and in control and affecting and change. making something happen. Yes. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And I think talking about meditation is just like realizing that you can let thoughts go. I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah. You could notice the thought, you could witness your thoughts and then let them go if you want it. I think that for a poet, it's one of the most powerful things that you can claim for yourself. And it makes me think now, like going back to our, 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 the beginning of our conversation, why was I so, in, I was enraged when people would say, maybe you should meditate. Me too. And I, and when a few times I tried it, I hated it. 
It made me anxious. I mm-hmm. felt sweaty. I was like annoyed. It's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I also just felt like ugh, everybody's just, it's like competitive meditation too. Mm-hmm. And I did for a while get really into headspace, but I was doing that with my total obsessive mind. I was like, and now I have done seven minutes and now I have done nine minutes and now I've done 11 minutes and I am so great and I did it. And then I like stopped doing it. So I like the app, like, and then I just stopped, didn't do whatever any, anymore. And I was like, this is, you know, this time it's just speaking to me and I'm available in a completely different way. Um, which is very profound. I love that. And yeah, I think that what you're saying too, like to counteract that, like, oh, I'm a success. I did this or to count and be like, okay, I have this streak or like, it falls into this sort of marketplace thinking, right? It's just like, I have achieved something. Whereas like, you know, the greatest get like to, how do you like live in your life? How do you live in your body? How do you, how do you give yourself what you want? Well, you know, I'm just remembering this actually would feel so important right now, which is that One of the things that my teacher said um, in the beginning, on like the first day of class, I think, was that she, you know, Mm -hmm. deeply believes in mindfulness training, in meditation, in like what this can offer people. Mm -hmm. You know, she studied this a long, long time. And she's really skeptical of the way in which mindfulness or meditation practices are being used in schools, in prisons, Ah, in places where they're sort of being used to basically pacify people or have people accept circumstances that are unacceptable. Mm. And that that is not, you know, what mindfulness is really for or about. Right. It can be profoundly mm. mm-hmm. healing mm-hmm. for someone to to, right. to right. learn how to tolerate right. pain that can't be fixed. Right. But you don't it's not like, okay, let's just continue with all this racism and teach everybody to meditate. Right. No. Right. That is not okay. Right. You know, I will say that one of the most helpful books, and this is, this is a pretty big, big book, so probably a lot of people already know this, but that book, um, 10% Happier. I don't know that. So, so yes. Yeah, so he, this guy, like he's like an ABC reporter. He totally has a panic attack on like Good Morning America. He freaks out mm-hmm. and you can see it. And so it takes him on this road towards meditation. And one of his main fears was like, what if you become so Zen that you now have no ambition, you don't act in the world. And so, you know, and he said that there are spaces where people then are Zen in the way that you know, is sort of caricatured and, you know, you'll go to dinner with people and they can't make a decision on dinner mm. because it's like disrespecting the other choices on the menu. Like, you know what I mean? People can take it <laughs> to that right. level. Um, but what, you know, one of the things he was saying is just like, it can make you more creative. It can clear like yeah. just where you need to go next. Right. Like it's not about pacifying, but it's about clarity. Right. And where I heard it explained, and I think about this image often when I'm trying to meditate, actually at the Vermont Studio Center, the executive director was one of the ones who told me I needed to meditate uh-huh. <laughs> and I got mad, <laughs> but I still went and it didn't work really. It's like you said, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't be in the space, but what they were saying, is just like, it's about like, you've got like, um, a kind of glass full of water and sand, right? And all that's happening is that it's settling. It's just that the water can become clear, Right. And I was was like, I think about that image as I'm sort of, it's just, it's just about like subtle, you know? Will you please tell me the story of starting Kundiman? Say what it is and tell me 
I mean, because I have so many questions and I've come into contact with people who have been so deeply changed by the organization. And then also I just was, uh, you know, like looking around on the website and I, I loved that the core, the three core values mm-hmm. are generosity, inclusion, and courage. Mm-hmm. And I literally got the chills and I just thought, okay, what if I just really think about every part of my life my teaching, my mm. mothering, mm-hmm. my sort of literary citizenship, the organizations that I am a part of, the ways in which I have power or not in the world. Yeah. And think about, are those three core values present? And if not, why not? And could I yeah. deepen them? Yeah. You know, could I enlarge them? But before we get that specific what is it and how did it come to be? <laughs> so Quindimon is a nonprofit organization that it used to be uh, dedicated to the creation and cultivation of um, Asian American literature. But then we were just like, but who are the writers without the readers? And so we changed our mission statement to specifically include readers. So the mission is Kundiman is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to nurturing generations of writers and readers of Asian American literature. So to acknowledge that there is this crucial relationship that has to occur and be nourished for something interesting to occur, something important, something magical to occur. So um, we have a a workshop retreat in the summer. We have reading series, storytelling initiative. We have like a youth initiative. So, uh, you know, lots of really exciting things that the organization is doing. I'm trying to think about, uh, because I've told the story a lot, but I'm trying to think of like, is there another kind of story I can tell, which can tell the story nevertheless? Okay, I'll just say that And I guess the story is just going to be adjacent to the other stories. Mm -hmm. I came to New York. It was like imagining you were coming to the sort of lap of literature. Like it's like in this country, you know, Mm -hmm. I sort of came with stars in my eyes. I was so lonely, (laughs) so lonely. Like I, you know, you, you go to the readings and you sort of stand by the cookies and sort of try to catch someone's eye. And then you like look away and it was just I was just like deeply lonely and not really understanding how to find my way. And as we were saying, it was just like there was also this, it, it felt like in some spaces, like this kind of like, you can't belong here or this is not for you. And uh, I think that Joseph and I were friends. And I think as Filipino Americans, like we didn't have to explain so much to each other. It's like very quickly he became like my brother um, because there was a shorthand to us being able to speak at a very deep level. And it was just like, wow, what is this? And then when I found out about Kaveh Kanem, I was like, what? That is amazing. I was like, we need to have that too. I mean, I remember like it was very swift. There was no like equivocating, like, okay, do I want to get into this? What is this? I was just like, that is amazing. This has to happen for us too. And then we just did whatever it is you were supposed to do to like make it happen, I think. And so, you know, what gave you, you know, the courage (laughs) and the generosity to do that? And did you initially imagine that it might be just Filipino American? Was it, did you from the beginning, how did you draw the... Yes, I think like it was a poetry organization. And so we wanted poetry to be the sort of 
tie and, you know, have it be all Asian American. Okay, I was 26, something like that. It's just part of it is like complete naivete, like just like, (laughs) and then I was working during the height of the internet bubble. Mm. And everyone around me was like 24, 20. And they were throwing us all this kind of money. And there was this sense of the impossible occurring. Like, and I remember the kinds of questions we would be asking each other. It's like, people were saying like, can you sell a car over the internet? Like, (laughs) is that possible? Uh Could that happen? Right. And then people like, how about a cat? Would people (laughs) buy, like no one knew, you know? So the sense of like, what is possible? Anything could be possible. And so I was, you know, fielding these crazy like conference calls with our India office, our California office, the West Virginia office. And I was like, I'm doing this for something I don't really care about. Mm. Like, what if I was able to sort of bring that to something I really do, which is this idea of a, of a literary organization. So I think it's just like that sort of brash, everybody is like young and feeling like nothing can stop us. Mm-hmm. And I will say to this day, like our advertising budget, is like nothing because everything was web-based for us. Like mm-hmm. I built the first website and all of a sudden we had a company and I just knew that that's what could happen because that's what I was doing in my waking life. And it was absurd, you know. Did you like already a, have an MFA? Yes. Okay. Yes. And but this was a non-poetry related job. You were yes. like a money job. Yes. Totally like a corporate job. Like I worked for Juno and Net Zero, like an internet access provider, like back in the day. And like I worked there for five years before I I went into academia. And yeah, so I think just believing that it could be so in terms of generosity, it's like, we didn't have that much money. (laughs) We didn't have that much money, but it's just like, I think we always knew to begin with abundance, right? With generosity. So I think that first year we bought a snow cone machine (laughs) and we were like, what did we call it? We call haiku overdrive. So in between like their workshops, we were like, we'll make you the snow cones, but you have to come up with a haiku. And we just like, we didn't want everything to be so precious. Like we wanted everything to be so fun. And um, like I had this dream, we never did it actually, but I wanted to play like freeze tag in the, in the dark and like somehow have that result in some kind of writing of a communal poem. Like we never ended up doing that, but like it was this chance to play. Mm-hmm. And I think poets are at our best, right? When we play. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I guess another way of asking this question, first yeah. of all, I love that Juno and Net Zero were a, a, <laughs> a small part responsible or led to um, Kundiman. I mean, that's beautiful. Um, That's a good corporate story. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess the other question is, you know, I was asking another writer recently, like, how did you have the courage to, you know, go off and like do what you did and, and take the chances that you took? And she acknowledged you know, that one of many things was that she knew that if she got into real trouble, her parents would help her financially. Mm -hmm. Um, And she had been able to graduate from college without any debt. Yeah. Um, And she had been trained in music. And so she had, you know, she had a skill that was uh, enabling her to make money. Yeah. um, Busking and, you know, in a band. And so I guess, you know, that's like, you know, Carmen Jimenez Smith, when I talked to her for Commonplace, there was this moment where she talked about 
um, how important it was mm-hmm. in, in this interesting way for her father to teach her to be entitled in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And he was always like reading these like, you know, business books and, yeah. and, and, you know, how to be successful. And so I guess that's like part of my question. It's like, I yeah. totally get that you were at this age yeah. and with the internet stuff where it was yeah. like, oh my God, let's try, let's see. But also like, what was it yeah. in you that yeah. enabled you to take those chances? And because it, you can open your doors to people or you can open your heart yeah. and people don't want it. Mm, and absolutely. that can yeah. be really hard. And, and there are a lot of people who have had such bad experiences with that, that they're just not able to take those kinds of risks anymore. Yeah. So I guess yeah. that's part of my question. I'm thinking on that. That's yeah. good. Oh, okay. I guess like, I'll just say that. Um, so my mother immigrated to this country when she was in her uh, early to mid 20s. She was the only one that came. She was a chemical engineer. Everything she knew was back in the Philippines. And so she came by herself. And it's funny, when I wanted to move to New York, I didn't tell her because she was always so terrible. That's interesting. She showed such courage. And then when I had said I wanted to move to New York, like she was so terrified that I just didn't tell her when I went. Mm. And so while I think my family, my mother would always preach like, you know, sort of be careful, be, but how she acted was not that, you know what I mean? In fact, like, you know, my uncles and aunts would be like, your mom taught me how to drive. She drives fast. She's always passing everybody. Yet she would say, like, be careful, be careful. But she's, you know, she was a completely courageous person. And I think, I think that I just thought that I could do it. And with Joseph, obviously. And I think that that, it had to be the two of us. I don't think I could have done it by myself. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the two of us believing that it could be possible and needing it. I guess that's the other thing, too. It's like, I wasn't just sort of a provider of this, though I have never been a fellow. (laughs) I've never obviously been a fellow, but it's like, I needed it so much myself. And that goes back to the loneliness. So it's just like, it was not like a business, a nonprofit. It was something I really, really needed to have. Like I needed a place where I didn't have to be guarded. I remember like at this one MFA party I went to, the more wine people kept drinking, like the smarter they got, (laughs) like the more like... (laughs) rarefied, the Mm -hmm. illusions. And I was like, I don't get smarter. That doesn't happen to me. Uh Um, And so to be in a space like, you know, at Kondimon, like we have karaoke, like we go to, you know, all you can eat buffets. Like we just, you know what I mean? Like we're not afraid to be cheesy together. And lots of things, like everyone loves cheese. Everyone loves it. Everyone's like, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. But secretly, what do they want? They want that too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's a roundabout way of asking that. It's like, I just, I really needed that. I really needed it. I needed it. And I think Joseph did too. Like we just... We were willing to do whatever it took. And I guess that's the thing, too. It's like we were also willing for it not to be glamorous. As you know, like you've done so much, right? Like it's not the sort of like you're on the stage and like saying beautiful things. It's like it's hard work. Yeah. And I think we were prepared to do that. And it's it's gotten so big now. Like how many? We didn't know. We didn't know like it would become this. Like we didn't set out to do that. We set out we talk about this all the time. Like one of our favorite memories 
the retreat was first at UVA where I went to school. And literally, okay, because like we were looking for a retreat space. Everything's expensive around here. I'm from Virginia. So I literally called UVA and I was just like, how much would it cost? To have? And this is like, it was reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, but like one of our favorite memories is like we had no access to public space. So we would just crowd into this little dorm room. You know, Patrick Rizal would play acoustic guitar and we would sing love songs to each mm. other. Like it's just love, just so lovely. Mm -hmm. I don't know, when you honor that which you really need, you might be surprised. Because as you say, there are others who they'll just shut the door in your face. I do think that Kundiman is a crucible. It's a lot, right? But it kind of self-selects. You're not going to leave everything you know and come out to Charlottesville, Virginia, or to the Bronx. Like You're not going to leave your friends and your family unless you know like you need an experience like this. Mm -hmm. I always say it's like my first child, you know, she's like 16 now or like almost 16 and I can't, I can't believe it, you know, right? Yeah. I'll just say this, like yeah. lastly, I just think, again, it's kept coming up for us, like abundance and generosity. And I think that so many of us were like poised, wondering when am I going to get that? When is the other person going to do that thing so that I can do it then? And I guess what I want to say to poets to all of us, really, it's like, don't wait, like begin first, and then you're going to be amazed at what will come back to you. I, I think that's what can hold people back because it's an act of vulnerability, as you say, right? It's like, what if I do this? And then it's not reciprocated, right? But then that means that we're all at a standstill, right? So to take a chance and move forward towards each other, and also you can be discerning about this. And I tell my students this, and it's just like, as soon as you realize somebody cannot be safe for you, you don't discuss it anymore. Mm -hmm. Like you move to where you can be safe because it's possible. And I think ultimately that's what Kundiman is. It's a safe space where you can let your guard down, especially as a person of color in this country, your guard is constantly up. For me, it's like, I feel like I'm always waiting for like that next crazy thing to be said or to be done. And it's like, when you can just sort of like, let it go, what better refreshment, I'll say. And I think that speaking in a larger way, we all are in need of refreshment. It's hard, right? It's like, it's hard to do, but then what you get back is so exponential. Like, don't believe the lie. You can be happy for each other. Like the scarcity mentality, like if somebody gets something, that doesn't mean they've taken it from you, mm -hmm. right? That means that another poet has found a way to have their voice heard. That means that there's more for you, not less. And so I think that, I don't know, as poets, if we can be models, like paragons of generosity and of giving, like I think that also makes the work better too. I'll just say that. Okay, you know what so I mean? very last thing. Yeah. When you feel your generosity flagging. <laughs> what do you do? Can you say maybe one or two things that help you recharge, that help you get your courage back up to go back to a place of abundance and not shut down to find the safety that you need and the strength that you need? It's such good questions. <laughs> I really want to answer that honestly and not just give like an easy answer. Mm -hmm. I think for most of my life, I've been, you know, chased by lightning. You know what I mean? It's like for most of my life, I don't think I've stopped to consider. Like, it's just like, this is what I need to do. 
and I have to be this way. But I, I have to say now, though, like I'm taking stock. It's just like some of that was not super healthy, mm-hmm. right? Like I was not taking care of myself, like with the terrorist story, right? I was not taking care of myself. And I didn't know how to do that. So I think now like I'm on this new way of being, which is like, when I want to really live a different way. And I, I don't think I could have this conversation without having done that other work. Mm-hmm. But I think slowing down, and this comes back to what we're saying about the market, right? I think that sometimes in poetry, it can be like, well, how many books did you have? Wait, where? how many publications did you have? Or what did you, and this kind of thing. And I think that also gets really complicated when you're on the tenure track too, where you're just like, it is about like the lines on the CV. And, you know, you believe that if you can accumulate a certain thing, then, then that might lead to some kind of golden ring, I think. And so I think now it's just like being able to like say, do I enjoy this? Do I need to say this? Am I saying this because I think I should say this? And then taking a break. And like, okay, now this comes back to the book. It's like feeding yourself, Mm. feeding others. And I think, again, this mindfulness meditation stuff, it is a lifesaver. Like even five minutes can change your whole day. So I guess like, yeah, I highly, highly recommend that. Also, I guess I'll say this. It's just like when you don't give from a place of joy, you have to stop. Mm. You can't like immolate yourself for this, right? Because the person feels that when you're giving to them. So I think to stop and that sometimes the most generous thing is to take care of yourself, which, we, you know, sometimes we're very bad at doing. (sighs) Thank you for this. Yes, thank you. This was wonderful. I'm sorry my phone was blowing up. You have just been listening to episode 66 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Commonplace is produced by myself, Doreen Wang, Christine LaRusso, and Nicholas Fuenzalita. This episode was sound edited and mixed by Becca DiGregorio. Our theme song was written and performed by Moses Zucker-Gorin, and our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Many thanks to Persia Books and Alice James Books, and to the other presses who have donated books to Commonplace. Thank you to our patrons for supporting our show, and to you, listener. Take care, be well, and thank you for listening.